Last week, we uh, began a four-week series entitled Unshakable. This whole series centers around the testing of Jesus found in Luke chapter 4. Now, we said that this series is a precursor to a series that we're going to be doing in the fall entitled Living the Mission. And the purpose of this series is to remind us that if we are going to live out the mission of Jesus, we must be completely committed to the mission of Jesus. Our commitment to Jesus, our commitment to the mission of Jesus is cemented through seasons of testing. Times when we uh, stand against the distractions that are coming into our lives and we instead focus on who He is and what He has called us to do. And so, the enemy's purpose, we, we said as we look at this series, during this particular event as he is encountering Jesus in the wilderness, is to get Jesus to depart from his mission so that the mission of God to restore lost humanity would fail. And so Jesus, as we read this whole passage, will see that he'll have none of it. He doesn't, he doesn't go there at all. He's unshakable. And so I believe as we look at this passage, this passage believes, it reveals a lot about the character and the methods of Satan as he works to distract from the mission. I believe this passage gives us in, in, insight in how Satan will try and distract us and keep us from our mission, our focus on God's plan. So we got to be aware of his tactics. We, we need to be completely committed to the mission because as Jesus was unshakable, we too need to be unshakable. Now last week, we took the opportunity to lay the groundwork for this series by considering some things that took place leading up to this testing or temptation uh, narrative that we find in Luke 4. We looked at the baptism of Jesus, we looked at the genealogy that Luke puts there, and we looked at the whole point of it is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that leads Jesus to the wilderness for this testing time. And so now we're ready over the next few weeks to look at the three tests that we find in this particular narrative. And so the three that we will see here, the three major themes that we will see will be physical appetite, power, and protection. And so we'll look at one of each of these over the next three weeks and how Jesus responded to them. So for a few moments today, I want to talk to you about physical appetite because this reminds us of the importance of trusting God to provide us with what we need. Because our trust in God is based on the depth of our relationship with God. If we trust God, if we have relationship with God, then we will trust God. So let's look at Luke chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 to 4. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread 
alone. I want to begin this morning by looking at a couple of comparatives. You've heard me say many times, and I'll reiterate this morning, that if you're going to properly interpret the Bible for how God intended it to be understood for us, we need to understand and appreciate the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That if you don't understand and appreciate that connection, really a lot gets missed when we're reading simply the New Testament. And there are two comparatives to the Old Testament text that the testing of Jesus parallels that I think are really important for us to understand if we're going to understand this whole episode at all. The first one is, and it's not working, Sebastian, so you'll have to do it. The first one is Adam and Eve. Last week, we acknowledged that Luke strategically placed his genealogy just before the testing passage and ended with Adam, small s, son of God. And we said he did this to remind us that the first Adam failed when tested, but that the second Adam, Jesus, the big s, son of God, would succeed when tested. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, we observe a pattern in the testing of Eve, which eventually involves Adam, that parallels the pattern in the testing of Jesus. We begin with the, with the physical appetite. Satan said to Eve, if God, you know, did God really say that you couldn't eat the forbidden fruit? Now, Scripture says the fruit of this tree was pleasing to her eye. She was drawn to it. She wasn't allowed to have it, but it was pleasing to her eye. She was drawn to it, and she wanted to have it. All the other fruit was available to her, but it wasn't enough because she wanted all of it, even though God said she couldn't have it. Her appetite for it was greater than her trust in God and what God had said to her. The second thing we see in that, uh, in that testing in Genesis is the whole theme of power. The enemy told her, he said, if you eat this fruit, that you're going to have great wisdom and you're going to become like God. And so she wanted to become like God. She wanted to have that wisdom. She wanted the power, so she ate it. And we also then see this theme of protection. Eve responded to Satan and said, you know what? God said, if I eat this, I'm going to die. And he said to her, no, you're not going to die. You're definitely not going to die. And so she believed him. And the words in the scripture says, she saw that it was good. She saw that it was good to eat. In other words, she, she believed that it was safe. She believed it wouldn't harm her. She believed that by taking it, not only would she not get hurt, but actually something really good would come from it. And so we'll see over today and the next two sermons that these themes are paralleling the testing of Jesus in the wilderness. The second comparative is Israel. Israel's journey from Egypt to the promised land is also paralleling the testing of Jesus. First of all, we have divine leading. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 8, Moses, in front of the people, as they're preparing to go into the promised land, he reminds them that it was God that led them. He says, God led you to the wilderness, and God led you through the wilderness. They were led by the cloud by day. They were led by a pillar of fire by night. His presence was always in the midst of them, leading them through the wilderness. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, we're told that it's the Holy Spirit that has led Jesus to and through the wilderness testing. So both of them have divine leading. Secondly, the number 40. Israel spent 40 years wandering in the desert en route to the promised land. In Luke 4, 2, Luke tells us that Jesus spent 40 days, which is also the same amount of time that Moses spent on the mountain with God in getting the law, and the same amount of time that Elijah spent in the wilderness when God was moving in his heart and life and preparing him for the next season of his mission in his life as well. So we see that parallel. Thirdly, we see the parallel of God's Son. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses reminds the Israelites that the reason God led them through the wilderness for 40 years, he said, was to discipline you like a man would discipline his son. Now, when we think of discipline, we often think of punishment. When I was growing up, discipline was equal to a belt, a piece of rope, or the back of somebody's very large, strong hand, or you know what I'm saying. Discipline, right? We think of discipline as punishment, but the word discipline is the same word we get our word disciple from, which means to train or to teach. And so what Moses is saying here is that God used the hardship of the wilderness testing to show Israel, to teach Israel so that Israel would learn that he is faithful, that they could trust him, that they need to obey him in every moment of their lives. And so in this scripture and in other scriptures, Israel is referenced as God's son. Well, as we look at this temptation narrative, we see over and over the theme of God's son being so prevalent throughout the testing narrative. We see it during the baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. We see it in the genealogy, the son of God. We see it in the wilderness over and over again. If you are the son of God, it just keeps coming up. Fourthly, we see the parallel themes. Each of Jesus' responses to the three tests of the enemy are quoted directly from Deuteronomy, from chapter 6 to chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, where Moses is identifying the many times that God was faithful to Israel when they were tested in the wilderness. And we'll see that, they are, that Jesus is pulling from those themes as he responds in his wilderness experience. And then, of course, we see responses in both. God gave Israel the promised land, even though really Israel didn't deserve it. They were unfaithful. They weren't loyal. They failed time and time again. But eventually they got there by the grace of God. Isaiah the prophet writes in 63 verse 10, he says, that while they were, you were in the wilderness, Israel, you grieved the Holy Spirit. You grieved the Holy Spirit in the wilderness. You rebelled against God in the wilderness. You didn't trust God in the wilderness. You weren't obedient. He reminds them of that. But when we read Luke's passage, we see that Jesus, too, led by the Spirit, but didn't grieve the Spirit, responded to the Spirit, was led by the Spirit, and stood firm in moments of testing, trusting God, 
and was obedient. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. So it's important for us to see the relationship this morning between the Old Testament and the New. That this is not a standalone passage, but there's a specific connection between Jesus and Adam and Eve and their testing, and Jesus and Israel and their testing in the wilderness, if we're going to grasp the full significance of what's taking place as Jesus is tested. So the next thing I want to talk about is Jesus' first test. This first test of Jesus takes place against the backdrop of Israel's wilderness experience. Satan says to him, if you are the Son of God, now he's not trying to get Jesus to doubt whether or not he's the Son of God. The word if here in this particular context means since. And so what Satan is saying to him is, since you are the Son of God, since we all heard the Father say it at the river, since we all know that that's been established, that you are the Son of God, he's not debating the fact. He's acknowledging it that it's true. He knows it's true. What Satan is trying to do in starting with that statement is he's trying to get Jesus to misuse his authority. He's trying to get Jesus to act inappropriately, to rely on his divine nature instead of relying on the Father for provision. And so if the mission is going to be successful, Jesus must lay aside his reliance on his divinity and he has to live and ultimately die as a man in obedience to the Father. Now, we're told Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days, and he's hungry. We don't know if Jesus deliberately set out on a spiritual fast, that, you know, for the next 40 days, I'm going to fast, and I'm going to pray, I'm, I'm not going to eat, and that was a decision we made. We're not told that that's the case, or if it's just a matter of the fact that he was there for 40 days, and because he's in the wilderness, there is no food source available to him. Either way, whether it was deliberate or just circumstantial, the point is, he's pretty hungry. I mean, you know, in about 45 minutes, some of you are going to be ready to chew your arm off. And I'm hoping to be done by then. I know I will be. And so he's hungry. Now, I want us to notice, there's nothing wrong with bread. Of course, unless you're on the Atkins diet and you're avoiding carbs. There's nothing wrong with bread. There's nothing wrong with eating when you're hungry. That's not the point of this passage. The theme here, the point of this passage, is trust. It's dependence on God to meet your needs. The divine nature of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is God, is that fact means that he is able to work a miracle at any moment. He could turn those stones to bread. But the human nature of Jesus needs to rely on God to provide for him. Otherwise, how could we, when we are tested, know that we can rely on God? He's our example. He's our role model. He's gone before us. And so Jesus, responding to this challenge in the midst of his hunger, says, man cannot live by bread alone. 
Now the response to the first test is linked. Those words that Jesus spoke are the exact words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. When Israel, he's talking about that moment when Israel was in the wilderness and they were hungry. They were starving. There was no food source available. And they began to complain to Moses and say, Moses, we're starving to death out here. We need food. And in response to that, God gave them manna, bread from heaven, to feed them while they were in the wilderness when food was not available. And so each day when they woke up, the manna was on the ground, and they would gather it, and they would eat it. It was their daily bread. Every day, God provided enough for that day. They could only gather enough for that day. They couldn't gather extra. When they tried to do that, they realized it would spoil. It was daily bread. And God chose this approach for a reason. He wanted Israel to learn to depend on him daily, to trust in him daily to be their provider. He wanted them to know that man's needs were not merely met by bread, but by the word of God, the promises of God, the very character of God. And so God showed them that they could trust him to provide for them on a daily basis. That was the basis of their relationship. I will lead you daily and I will provide for you daily. Now in referencing this Old Testament passage, Jesus is reminding Satan and he's declaring as truth the fact that man, mankind, cannot live by focusing on satisfying the desires of the flesh and the hungers within ourselves. That the focus of life should not be on satisfying your physical needs, your material needs, at the cost of compromising your spirituality. And so when his children trust him, Jesus is saying to Satan that God will provide what's needed in the manner and the timing that aligns with his plan, his purpose, and his mission. Jesus is declaring here that getting caught up in striving for physical, personal, and material gain is a distraction from the mission. And if the mission of Jesus is going to succeed, Jesus must rely on and depend on the Father to provide for him. Those are my two points. Now, some of you have one of two looks. You're totally bewildered because there's usually three. Or you're just elated because there's only two. You have one of two looks. But I want to go to three observations from this passage this morning. The first is trust. When we read about the account of the testing of Eve, we see how Satan caused her to question and doubt what God had said, what God promised with the Israelites, he's causing them to question God's promise that he's going to take care of them. He's going to lead them. He's going to get them somewhere. Now, obviously, God must not really care because they don't have what they want. They don't have what they need. They're in the middle of nowhere and they're lacking. With the first test with Jesus, he's, Satan is trying to get Jesus to take matters into his own hands since God is clearly not providing for Jesus in his hour of need. 
I want to suggest this morning that the enemy uses the same approach with us. Causes us to say, causes us to think, is that what God really said? Or is that what God really meant when he said that? And you think, well, you must have gotten it wrong. Because it's not really working out the way that I thought God said. And so now you you had to take matters in your own hands because God is clearly not helping me. God's not helping me. God's not doing what God said he was going to do. God's not responding based on what he promised. So I'm going to have to take matters in my own hands. And so we look at our circumstances and we look at what's happening in our lives and we say, God, my marriage is a mess. My health is a mess. My finances are a mess. My job is a mess. My family is a mess. My mental health is a mess. It's a mess. And obviously, God must not care about you. That's what the enemy wants us to think. Obviously, God doesn't care about you, and you need to take things into your own hands. It's time for you to take control of your life because God is not doing it. And there are times, whether we acknowledge it or not, we begin to doubt the promises of God. We begin to question the care of God. We begin to question faith in general. And then fear begins to consume us. And worry begins to overwhelm us. And when that happens to us, the result is, well, we we stop praying because we begin to question whether prayer even matters. Whether I pray or not, nothing changes. In fact, maybe the more you pray, the more it seems to get worse. Or you stop reading God's Word because, well, the promises on those pages, they may work for other people, but they don't work for me. They don't work for me. Or we withdraw from our faith community because we're disappointed, we're angry, we're discouraged. If the enemy can get us to question our faith, to question the promises of God, to question the provision of God, if he can get us to act and to think and to believe the way he wants us to act and think and believe, then he is succeeding in distracting us from the mission. Now, questioning in itself is not the issue. There are many examples in Scripture of people who question God. God is okay with that. God is okay with us questioning. God is patient with us and understanding of that. But it's when our questions cause us to push God out. When our questions get to the point where we ignore what He said. When our questions get to the point that we begin to take responsibility for ourselves without Him and we stop trusting Him. That's when we find ourselves in a dangerous place, and that's exactly where the enemy wants us to be. This week, earlier in the week, I posted something on Facebook Marketplace that I was selling, and a lady responded to my ad. She was interested, but the problem is she lives in East York, and she had no way of getting the item from my place to her place. So she said, if I pay the cost, would you deliver it? So I, you know, did the math, did the calculation, thought it through, and I thought, yeah, you know what? Item gets sold, my cost gets covered, and I'll bring Jen along and it'll be technically a date. (laughs) I mean, this is a win for everybody. 
And you laugh, but that is such an upgrade from funeral visitation and hospital visitation. You know what I'm saying? And so I said to her, yes, I will deliver your item. But here's my condition. You have to e-transfer me 50% of what you owe me because before I leave. And she said, well, I want to pay you cash. And I said, yes, but I can't spend all that time and go all that distance to bring this to you with the risk that, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to come through. And she said, but I only have cash. I said, you don't have a bank account? And she said, yes, but there's no money in it. I said, well, here's a suggestion. Take half of the cash. Put it in your bank account. E-transfer it to me. Problem solved. And then she said, you're not a trusting person. Why don't you trust me? Now, that's true. I'm not a trusting person. Because I've been in ministry for 30 years, and I've seen the underbelly of the worst of everything. So I'm very cautious with people. Sorry. You know? And so she said, why won't you trust me? And I said, because I don't know you. I can't trust you if I don't know you. Because trust and relationship go hand in hand. The stronger and more intimate the relationship, the greater the trust. And so we have to be careful that our hunger for material things, our need for material things, that need does not negatively affect our relationship with God to the point that it causes us to stop trusting God. Because you can't trust God to meet your daily needs if your relationship with God is not what it should be. And if our relationship with God is not what it should be, we don't trust as we should, and what we are left with is taking matters in our own hands, which leads to disaster. Trust. Entitlement. One of the most prevalent attitudes in today's culture is entitlement. People feeling like they're deserving of privileges and special treatments and rights. If you gave birth to a millennial, you know exactly what I'm talking about. No offense, millennials. You're just very entitled. But entitlement is not only evidenced in our culture. I believe it's very prominent in the church culture. There are whole ministries and theologies that are built on the teaching that material possessions are a sign of God's favor and approval, and you deserve them and you're owed them. Now, I don't usually watch, I'll call it Christian television. I don't even know what else to call it. I really don't. I re but recently I watched a video of two well-known, successful faith movement evangelists, and I'm not going to name them because I, I don't think that would be appropriate, who are having a conversation about why having a private jet or multiple private jets were absolutely necessary to their ministries. They were attempting to help the audience, me included, understand why they needed to raise and spend 50 to $60 million per private jet. 
Now, what I found most astonishing is, number one, if you're going to get a private something, you should probably just get a private yacht. I mean, I'd go for the private yacht. Who wants an airplane? I, I, I'll take the yacht. What I found most amazing were the comments that were made. I'm going to quote some of them back to you. Quote, a private jet protects the anointing. A private jet protects the anointing. Let's unpack that. If you are flying commercial, WestJet, you're on WestJet. The chances that you could be anointed by the Spirit on WestJet, it's impossible. It's impossible. Because the anointing is reserved to non-commercial flights. Because if you are in the presence of unbelieving people, it is not possible for you to maintain the necessary anointing. Do I need to explain why that's really dumb teaching? I don't think so. The second quote. It <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it revolves around distra distraction. I'm, I'm in a public space, and I just feel anointed talking about this. Quote, people are coming up to you. They recognize you, and they want prayer, and you can't get anything done. End of quote. Okay, when I heard that one, all I could think of is Jesus. And it's a long day, and his guys are tired, and they're trying to pray and rest and get away from the crowds, and, you know, they're trying to get off the commercial flight and get out of the airport. And they get to their hotel, and everyone's waiting in the lobby. They want to be prayed for. And Jesus says, oh, guys, let's get back on the private jet. <laughs> right? No. What does it say? When he saw them... He had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he says, you know what, guys? We got about 10,000 people we're going to feed in the next few hours. Let's, let's gear up. Yeah, I need the private jet because I can't get anything ministry-related done. Okay, I saved the best one for last. This is in the context of describing the experience of flying commercial, okay? This is what one of them says. Flying commercial is like getting in a long tube with a bunch of demons, quote, unquote. Well... I thought that's an interesting way to view those for whom Christ died. <laughs> the reward of his suffering fill commercial flights every day of the week. Granted, I'm not one who likes a conversation on an airplane. Trust me, I don't. I just want to put the cone of silence over myself. I don't like talking to the hairdresser. I just don't. I'm just flawed that way. I am. I'm flawed that way. But getting is like getting in a tube, a long tube, with a bunch of demons. Okay, go buy the $60 million jet. 
Folks, sadly, there are many Christian leaders and followers of Jesus in North America that are so caught up in materialistic things. They want God, we want God to answer every prayer. We want Him to answer it the way we prayed it. We want governments to lead based on our expectations. We want them to legislate morality. That we believe that persecution shouldn't exist, that it's odd and strange, and we shouldn't be rejected as believers, and we shouldn't be persecuted. And we're at the same time, we're obsessed with materialism. And I don't know what Bible we're reading or the Jesus we're following, but it doesn't line with the Bible that I read and the Jesus I know. It just doesn't. Now, we might be, you know, most of us sitting here this morning, we're not focused on the private jets. That's not our issue. But entitlement does affect our faith. When we feel like God owes us something, or the church, they owe us. Or we justify our materialistic behavior. When we do that, we are demonstrating entitlement. Satan said to Jesus, you're hungry. You shouldn't have to go without food. You're the son of God. You deserve it. Turn the stones into bread, Jesus. You deserve that. And Jesus wasn't buying into that thinking. Because justifying inappropriate action is a very dangerous practice. When we start feeling like the people at work don't appreciate us and they don't pay us enough, I mean, how many of you feel like so appreciated and so overpaid and so valued? I'm expecting to see your hand, Mark. (laughs) But you get to that point where you get in that really bad place that you resent going to work because they don't value me there and they mistreat me there and they don't pay me enough and they expect without giving back. And so what do you do? You start dogging it at work. You don't give them the full value of what you can bring. And then you start putting stuff in your, you know, in your purse. I'm going to throw a few paper clips and some, you know, a couple glue sticks or whatever. Because why? They don't give me what I deserve. They don't treat me right. I'm just going to help myself because I deserve better than this. Yeah, coffee pods. There you go. Are you taking coffee pods from Mark? I noticed they were going down quickly. Taxes. Well, you know what? The government, I don't like their decisions and they're increasing and they're taking so much and the price of gas, I'm not reporting X, Y, and Z on my taxes. They get enough already. I'm entitled to keep it. Or my spouse. You know, she's so cold. Or he's so unaffectionate. You know, it's okay for me to become emotionally involved or maybe even push the limits to become even deeper involved because, you know what, I deserve better and I'm not treated well enough in this relationship and so I'm going to go to someone who's going to treat me the way I deserve to be treated. Entitlement. Satan convinces that we're entitled. We deserve it. And he helps us to justify it in our minds so that when we act, we act fully justified that this is the right thing and it's okay. Folks, buying into entitlement will distract us from the mission. We got to be careful. And finally, hunger. All of us have hungers and appetites for different things, but they're not all necessarily bad things. We all hunger for relationship. We hunger for love, to love and to be loved. We hunger for some level of attention. 
We hunger for success. None of us sets out in the morning with the goal to be a complete failure today. We hunger for praise and approval. We hunger for resources. We hunger for social interaction between, beside a like on Facebook. We hunger for leisure. But the problem comes when hunger for these things outweighs our hunger for spiritual things, outweighs our hunger for God. And so ultimately, God wants us to trust Him, live for Him, obey Him, put Him above everything else. Jesus is the Lord of our lives, the number one priority, the first place, the one who matters the most. You know, we think holiness is sinlessness, but holiness is not sinlessness. Holiness is when the priority of God is the number, that God is the number one priority in your life and you're striving for that. That's holiness. And there is some sinfulness in that along the way that we learn and grow in. But that's holiness, a hunger and desire for Him and Him alone, and He's the number one priority. That's what we long for. But the problem comes for when hunger for these things outweigh the hunger for the spiritual things for God. Ultimately, God wants us to trust Him, to live for Him, to obey Him, to put Him above all else. There's a point in the wilderness in Jesus testing the whole point of that is that you can build, you know, you can't build a fulfilled life on things alone. That any life worth living is built on the purposes of God. I mean, we live in an area that's growing rapidly. There's new houses going up on our streets. There are new buildings going up. There are new stores being built. There are whole new subdivisions going where there used to be farmland, going up before our eyes every day. Materialism and hunger for things is driving our culture. Just think about our little town of Oakville. All the small houses in this part of the neighborhood that people raise their families in for years are no longer big enough or adequate so someone will come and spend approximately a million, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. Someone will buy it for about a million and then bring a tractor in and mow it to the ground and then put a monstrosity on the property. We're seeing it on every street around us. We need way more space than the generation before us needed to store our stuff. I, I, I marvel at the fact that my parents raised 11 children in a living space that was less than 1,000 square feet. Think about that. If you don't believe in modern-day miracles... We're still all alive, <laughs> except my parents. They didn't outlast it, but the 11 of us are still going. I'm not suggesting we do that. I'm just saying. One of the most prominent new businesses, storage buildings and units. They're going up. I wonder what that building is. Oh, it's a storage unit. Why? Because people need to rent extra space to store what they can't fit in their house. Right? We need more stores with greater varieties because we need more stuff. And folks, we all buy into it to a degree. I do. There's days that I, I confess. This is my confession. I buy into it. I clean all the garbage out of my garage, and then I go to a garage sale, and it's filled back up again. <laughs> I can't stop some days. I do. But what, you know, I have unique in my life is that 
For me, I had the opportunity a couple times a year of, of going to Cuba, and God uses that to try to help keep me in check. Because the last time I visited, I visited the, quote, poor part of the presbytery. I thought, I thought the whole presbytery was poor. No, there's a new area. It's the poor area. So I went to the poor area. I learned there's poor, and then there's poor. And so I, I, I needed the washroom, so, you know, baño, and I'm in the bathroom, and I noticed there's no roof over the bathroom because it got blown off during the hurricane, and they couldn't afford to replace it. Now, that's a great exhaust fan. Like, seriously, world's best exhaust fan. But not so nice when it's pouring down rain. It just isn't. Or a family that doesn't own table and chairs, so every night when they gather a little bit of food, they sit around the edge of their bed and eat. And their bed, incidentally, is located at the back, back of the sanctuary because there's not enough rooms to house the congregation and have a bedroom, so they're all in the same room. Or I visited a house that we purchased a few years ago, but it's still not finished and it's right in the heart of town, in the square, and, and there's so many people, but the pastor and the church are out on the edge where nobody is, and people have to go all the way out there, and, and they don't have any means to get out there, and there's no reminder that they're even out there. And for $5,000, they can finish the house and, and meet in the square, and they just can't do it. And when I see that, God checks my spirit. And I remember all the things that I fall trapped to when I'm back home. Because for them, the greatest hunger is not material things. It's the kingdom of God. It's what can we do for God. Folks, the greatest hunger of our lives should be our hunger for the things of God, the mission of God, the kingdom of God. But we live in a place that we are so spoiled and we innocently get so caught up in it that our lives become so focused. So let's be careful. That the enemy doesn't use your hunger for materialistic things to distract us from what matters. I'm going to invite Tyler back. In this moment, we're all glad we're not going to the park for a picnic in the park. <laughs> the sound of that rain. Folks, there's an enemy who desires to destroy, deceive, and distract us from God's mission. We can overcome the enemy through the authority of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, we're going to have questions along the way about God's care, but God's always going to keep His promises. In a culture of entitlement, let's be careful that we don't get caught up in what we think we deserve and what we need and miss the opportunity to serve God faithfully. Folks, we all have hunger but let's be careful that our hunger doesn't take us away from God's intention for us. Because the enemy wants to distract us from the mission by causing us to lessen our trust in God's promises. We must trust God that what he has said is true. If we're going to live out the mission of Jesus... We must be completely committed to the mission of Jesus. Unshakable. Unshakable.